0: process of becoming a musician right you learn dedication and skill and practice and disappointment and beauty and joy and teamwork it's it's really quite magical
1: From Fiori Communications, it's How I Got Here, a show of inspiring stories from Tallahassee area leaders, business owners, and neighbors, all the challenges, opportunities, inspirations, the twists and turns of life that led them to where they are today. Everyone has a story worth telling, and I am really grateful that we get to bring a few of them to you. I truly have been changed by my conversations with these amazing people, and I'm confident you will be too. I'm Dave Fiore, and in this episode, I speak with Erica Thaler, chief marketing officer at RB Oppenheim Associates and former communications and marketing manager at the Council on Culture and Arts. Erica grew up in San Diego, where she raced catamarans and was a self-proclaimed horse girl who loved being an 80s kid because it included trips to Mexico to, quote, practice her Spanish. Erica majored in political science at UCLA and started her 30-year career in radio as an account executive at 91X, the country's second alternative rock station. After moving to Tallahassee, she and her two children started taking music lessons, and Erica spent 10 years playing the violin, some of that time with the Tallahassee Symphony Youth Orchestra, an organization she would eventually lead. Erica is a wife, quilter, dog lover, and passionate advocate for the arts, who's excited about her new role doing what she has always done, effectively connecting people and resources to help them be successful. We started our conversation talking about growing up in Southern California.
0: So San Diego is an interesting city. What most people don't realize is if you head about five miles east from the coast, you basically look like you're in a Star Trek set. So if you can picture, like, Kirk coming down the mountain, you know, with a big fake styrofoam boulder over his head, that is what... With the lo- guy in the red uniform the guy who's not going back. Exactly. Right. And he's carrying this big right. thing and rocks are tumbling. Um, likely that was filmed in Southern California. So it has a very interesting desert landscape when you're not at the beach. Because
1: um, I think America's Cup and beach yeah, stuff. Yeah. Well, not beach, but seaside. Coastal. Kind of looking, coastal, yeah.
0: It, it, there's a wonderful, wonderful coastal community there. Um, but it's just, there's there's just two different two different San Diegos. But that said, I did spend a lot of time on the beach growing up. Um, I used to windsurf and I used to actually race catamarans and sail catamarans. Oh, wow. And I just spent a lot of time, you know, doing beach activities. In fact, one of the things, a very fond memory of mine is snorkeling at La Jolla Cove with my father. Okay, And so that was actually a really special memory.
1: At what age did you start doing that?
0: I was probably eight or nine. And I remember seeing there's like the state fish, which is the Garibaldi, which is this orange fish that you can look down into the water and spot it. It's like a big, big orange fish. Um, And we could see the Garibaldi. Occasionally, we would see little barracuda come by us. And I just remember a lot of really special times um, snorkeling with my dad. Nice. Um, the area where we snorkeled is now currently overrun by sea lions. <laughs> so I don't know how many people actually snorkel there. right now. They don't now. want to
1: share the fish, I guess.
0: Yeah, I don't. I'm not sure how um, clean the water is. Mm. But um, but yeah, yeah San Diego's pretty magical. The other thing about it that's interesting is that the weather is just always perfect.
1: So you talked about your dad. So tell us about your family and family life growing up.
0: Family life. Um, I am an only child. And honestly, most of what I did growing up was spent at a horse barn. So I used to show horses. That is, I started taking riding lessons when I was four. Okay. And rode competitively up until I was 18. Wow. So I spent a lot of time at the barn.
1: Tell me how that when you like people who have a sport or music or whatever. Tell me what it was like for you oh. dedicating so much of your time to uh, wow. ho- to equine related activities. I love
0: I love this topic. So most horse girls like it's their it's their world. I mean that's just the ribbons we, and the competition. It, all of it. And but we I had a really nice barn for lack of the you know a better word. Like we weren't in a big fancy show barn. We were in you know just your kind of average barn and we did all the work. I mean, when we it was time to get ready for the horse shows, we would I remember getting many, many times up at 4 4:30 four, four, four in the morning, going out to the barn, realizing that my horse needed his, you know, his feet washed for whatever reason they got dirty. You know, and it would be freezing cold and I'd be scrubbing the the, you know, the horse's feet and doing all the cleaning and doing everything that needed to get done. So we really, really learned a lot of responsibility Mm -hmm. um, and, and, that is not like that at all. Barns. I mean, there are just some fancy schmancy barns where the kid comes in and the horse is already and the kid hops and, on and yeah. he gets the ribbons and then it goes. Then they go home. We weren't like that, so we really.
1: But you learned the whole process. We learned the
0: whole process. We took. We really, really took care of our. And brothers you,
1: brothers. I know you appreciate it now, looking back. Did you appreciate it oh, at yeah. the time? It was so fun.
0: Yeah. I can't. I can't. Um, that was the be- Absolutely, the best part of my childhood.
1: And you did that through high school. Through high school, Until right. I was eighteen. Okay. Did you have time for anything else in high school, or did that take up most of your attention? I'm
0: an '80s kid. I mean, I mean, we had lots of time. <laughs> we weren't on. It just yeah. seems like the world was really different. I mean, there was time to sit and talk on our, you know, our corded phones, and like you know, they, Stranger Things. Yeah, <laughs> no, only without
1: them, monsters.
0: Honestly, when I watch Stranger Things, it, clearly whoever is writing that knew what it was like to be to grow up in the '80s. Because, like, well, there it is. You know, we we.
1: Just a pack of kids on bikes. Parents don't even think about it till it's dark.
0: They did not. I can't tell you the things, the stupid things we did. Like I remember taking bikes and like riding down the side of a mountain, you know, which is <laughs> dumb. There could have been rattlesnakes. We didn't wear helmets. I mean, right. we did all kinds of silly things. We went to Mexico when we were in high school to, quote, practice our Spanish and we didn't bother to tell anybody that a whole pack of us had just gone across the border to Tijuana and walked around, and you know we didn't get into trouble. But like, how dumb is that? Just the eighties were different. Yeah. So um,
1: we all survived, or most of us survived. <laughs> most of us survived. So the you 80s. could just go back and forth without. Did you have a? You need a passport or no, something?
0: No, you just went across the border and then you came back. Okay. Yeah. But did I have? But you were asking, like you know, did I have time yeah. for? Yeah, I, th- I mean, there was plenty of time to do all the things. It, I feel like I feel like what is expected of our young people now. Um, I think it's. I think they're expected to do more. Yeah. I think we worked hard, but I think it was harder to accomplish those tasks because, for example, you didn't have a computer. So you had to actually go to the library and look right. things up. And and it just took longer to get those things done. But there was just also um, the luxury of not having to do things so quickly.
1: Yeah. And
0: I think that now um, – We didn't
1: have to know everything about everything.
0: <laughs> right. And now we do.
1: Um. So after high school – You go to college at UCLA. Yep. Right? Yep. And earned a degree in political science. Yeah.
0: Why did that happen? Why did that happen? I don't know. Were Um, you interested in politics? (laughs) I think I saw the movie Wall Street and I thought that that's... Gordon Gekko. (laughs) Yeah. I figured that's what I should do. Um, I did not like it, but but I had everything kind of mapped out. I was going to get my poli-sci degree and go to law school. So (laughs) I think it was my... Second year in college. I took some sort of graduate level like pre law class. It was part of the honors program. And I literally got in there. I had no idea what we were doing. They were doing a moot court. I think I freaked out and like didn't go to the class. I think I sobbed in front of the professor and somehow got out of it with a C and left. And I'm like, this is not for me. And I knew then like this just I'm, I'm not cut out for this. And, right. and it was probably the wrong class to throw, you know, a 19-year-old in. Maybe some 19-year-olds, but not for me. Right. Um, but I stayed with it because I was so far into the major, because I did business and honors and poli-sci. So I just stayed with it. And I, it was an interesting degree, but I should have been a communications major. Yeah. Like, hands down, I have no idea um, why. And it's my own fault for not digging into the possibilities. But I just have to say, I it's my own responsibility to have created a support system for me, but I just didn't have people around me to guide me. And mm. I, I wish that I would have taken more advantage of that. I, I feel like as a parent I'm more connected with what is available for my kids than my parents ever were. Yeah. But that's still my responsibility. I should have figured it out. Yeah. But it's I think here that's I am. different
1: too. Maybe maybe it's not for everybody, but I was completely on my own. I, I mean, <laughs> I went to college to be a, a band director and then the only reason I I went into got my degree in PR, but the only reason was because I had a a friend whose sister was in PR, and I'm like, that sounds fun. Yeah, that was my whole process. Yeah, so.
0: I th- I think there's more, maybe I don't know. I think that there maybe is a little more guidance and a little more, maybe right. more resources for young people. But I'm not but entirely it worked really out sure. Okay, it worked out fine, and I loved school.
1: So, what did you do after graduation?
0: Oh. So I graduated, and I'm smiling because, boy, I ended up as an account executive at the second alternative rock station in the U.S. So at the time, it was 91X in San Diego, and anyone that knows— yeah, um what that whole scene was like there was KROk rock and in, in Los Angeles and then 91x was the second second one in fact their logo if anyone is familiar with 91x and there may be some listeners it's the same logo that they had they haven't changed it and um, it's was basically, I just, it was really fun. It was a complete transition into what, you know, alternative music was. Right. Was. So what
1: what was alternative rock in this time period in the 80s that um, you're talking about?
0: Wow. So it would have been like The Cure and Depeche Mode and The Fix and, um, I mean, just any of that.
1: Right, flock Through, of seagulls. Flock
0: of seagulls. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah. I mean, it basically it was the the what what was on MTV, and so it was just a different type of experience, and it was also the eighties, and there were just it was a little wild, um, yeah. but it was great training, and and uh, we had a lot of fun, and that's ultimately where I met um, my husband.
1: Okay. We'll come back to him in a second. Yeah, were you selling time? Were you an account executive, or an, were what? What was your role? I was an account
0: executive, okay. and I, um, I basically started with no account list and straight commission.
1: So you're going door to door.
0: We made phone, or yeah, we made phone, phone, calls, phone calls, made phone calls, and it was extremely intimidating. I was 22, right out of school, and the majority of the the AES or account executives were men and probably their early late twenties or early thirties. But you know, when you're a twenty-two-year-old, like those are grown people, right? <laughs> and of course, they're like kind of obnoxious and they'd look at me and be like, They know everything. You, what'd you sell today? You know, and I was just terrified. And you're in this room with like a bunch of cubicles and everyone can hear you. And um, you know, somehow I didn't fail. But I learned a lot. I learned a lot about sales and I learned about about being um kind of fearless in a very, very tough and and often very inappropriate, um, you know, environment. Right. By inappropriate, I mean...
1: Some sexism going on.
0: Oh, absolutely. And things like go to Mexico because I'd be calling on some of the nightclubs, go to Mexico, go pick up $1,000 and bring that back over the border, those kind of things. Or yeah, yeah, I see your face. Like those were things that I was (laughs) expecting. I just made a face. Yeah. Yeah. those Those were things that, you know, just you did. You got to call on the nightclubs, then you had to go basically pick up the cash. So they're just things that wouldn't happen today. Interesting. It was just, you know, I, this was not the radio station I worked at, but there was a station in San Diego where when the women made a sale, they would go stand on a table and they would take a bell and hold it between their knees and ring it. Now, the male account executives did not have to do that, but the women did. And somebody um, actually called them on it and there was a lawsuit. And that was what I remember being like the beginning of the change toward, this is what we do at work and this is what we don't do at work. Hmm. But there weren't a lot of rules on the, in, yeah. back in the day.
1: The 80s were different.
0: The 80s were different.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so you met your husband doing radio, I did. right? So I want to hear that story.
0: Oh, uh so we met at a Jason Jennings sales seminar and Jason Jennings was a sales trainer. Okay. And I do remember meeting him. He had just just been hired and I remember meeting him and He was doing that he was an account executive He was an account well? executive okay. also and we um, I remember, you know, We were friends for a long time, but I do remember sitting in the back of of various workshops and seminars and, you know, probably not paying attention and writing notes or I don't know what we did.
1: How did you end up in Tallahassee?
0: So we were one of the the mom and pop owner operators. And we, if anyone remembers the old WMLO radio station –
1: yeah, Mellow 106. Mellow Mello 105. 105. Mello
0: 105. So okay. we we bought that and we actually flipped it to a hot, a hot AC, which was Live 105, and ran that for several years. And then um, sold it to, I guess, I don't know who the, I think it's been sold several times, but it's the Hot 1049 property right okay,
1: now. Okay, so let's stop there for a second. You know, being an AE at a radio station is different than owning a radio station. So how did you all end up? owning your own radio station.
0: That would be a much better question for my husband than for me. Okay. Um but he he that was always you know something that he had had wanted to do and again this was many years ago. I'm going to say it was 25 years ago when you still could actually or somebody could do that. Somebody could do that. Right. And so um
1: But that was pretty cool.
0: It was pretty cool. It was it was a different Tallahassee 25 years ago and I would say it was harder to break I don't want to say break in or break through, but it was harder to meet people because you know how it is here. Everybody knows everybody, mm. but there weren't as many outsiders coming in. So I think it was harder for us to get connected than it would have been now.
1: Right. So you sold the station. We
0: sold the station.
1: And what did you do after that?
0: I worked, uh, we sold the station. I worked a little bit in radio, Um, But the most interesting shift during that time, well, during that time, I had moved to Tallahassee. I had a five-month-old son. And then we had another child. So I had two little kids, a little girl, except two little kids. So this was the big shift in Erica's career. When when my son was three, I remember that a, a teacher said, it's time for him to start music lessons. And I said, okay. I walked into Cavatina Music Studios. I knew a little bit about Suzuki Method, which I can talk to you about. And I looked at the piano. I had a piano. daughter who did Suzuki, All right. so... so you know. Yeah. To the, at, the, at the piano and the violin, and I said, which one would you like to play? And he pointed at the violin. And we embarked on a really lovely journey of music lessons. So both our son and our daughter are still playing, but I... Um, At that same time, I actually saw an ad in the paper of all things for a a management position for the Tallahassee. Uh, youth orchestras, right? And I had I was able to to secure that position, and that was one of the most exciting experiences I've ever had in terms of like changing careers,
1: right? Well, tell us about that, how that happened, and what that role. What what did you do in that role?
0: So basically, I was I was my title was general manager, but I basically was the executive director. It just you know, I, mean, I did those same functions. it's Just that at the time, the youth orchestra was part of the Tallahassee Symphony, but I basically had my own little you know, area of purview. So we organized, well, I had the wonderful experience of getting to work with um, Dr. Alexander Jimenez, and he is the, currently the, right. the um, director of the two orchestras at FSU, and he was the youth orchestra manager at the time. So it was a really wonderful experience to work with a very, um, seasoned professional. And we had a really good program going. He would he took care of basically most of the hiring of the staff because there were coaches, there were ensemble directors. And then I basically put my sales and marketing skills to work and figured out how can we recruit more kids, how can we create scholarships, how can we have really, really nice programs. And um, so that when the kids are having their concerts, they have a you know a really professional experience. Like at the time, we were recording and selling CDs. We had a newsletter, and so it was just is you know it wasn't it wasn't as social media. There was no social media right, around it, so yeah. it was kind of like running a, a little orchestra program. I was very proud of it. We did exceptionally well. I think I was there for three years, three or four years, and we we grew a lot. It so, was a really, really wonderful experience. Right.
1: And these are high school students who, right?
0: They started really little. We had a okay. program called Primos. And so we had some four- or five-year-olds starting up into kids that were in the um, the symphony level.
1: All right. So was this position in this role, was that kind of your foot in the door to the arts community <laughs> it, in Tallahassee?
0: Absolutely. I loved it. And because um, our kids were, were playing in the orchestras at the same time and taking lessons, um, it it's sort of how I – Really got into the arts world um, and sort of stayed there. Right. So yeah. All
1: right. Yeah. Well, speaking of that, in two thousand nine, right, you took a job as the communications and marketing manager for Coca. I right?
0: did. I did. I actually. Is there something
1: before that? There was.
0: There was. I worked at WFSU.
1: Okay, that's where WFSU fits in.
0: Right before. Okay. Right, and the reason I was at WFSU is. I was working at the youth orchestra director and at Clear Channel's integrated marketing director. They were both part-time positions, Okay. and the Clear Channel position moved to full-time, and it I, it didn't make sense for me to, to, to do that. And so I and that's when I ended up going to WFSU. I, th- I believe at the time I needed, I, I had a young child at home, and I think I was looking for like a three-quarter time position right. or a little more flexibility. Okay. So I worked I worked at WFSU in corporate underwriting. Frank it's, Flynn. I Frank was one of – it was me, <laughs> and Frank, and Betty Harrison for a yeah. long time. And Frank's a great guy. Frank's
1: been a, a good friend in the business for yep. a long time.
0: Frank – I worked with Frank. And they're just some really lovely people there. And yep. it's a wonderful station. And they do incredible work. But then I, I – in, in 2009, I actually was hired as the devel- development director for COCA by okay. the wonderful Peggy Brady. And this was when the Arts Exchange Project – if that sounds at all familiar, um, there was a big initiative for having an, an artist space with a black box theater, with some anchor tenants, with some affordable housing component, and and we were trying to put that together. And for a number of reasons, with the recession, you know that that effort was halted. And I think the public screenwise publics market is is what lives on that particular okay. bit of land that we were looking at. Very shortly after I was hired at COCA, my job switched to basically become marketing communications from development.
1: Hey, everybody. Just a quick reminder that this episode is brought to you by Fiori Communications. Just like people, every business has a story to tell. And we've been helping our clients tell their story since 2001. Because who you are as a company is just as important as what you do. To learn more about how telling your story can make a difference in your business, visit fioricommunications.com. Thanks again for listening. Now back to the show. Switching from development to communications, was that something that was exciting to you or was that um, it's a little bit different role, right?
0: I loved being COCA's spokesperson and I loved basically what I saw as two roles at, at COCA for a long time. One, one role was basically to help all of the arts organizations and artists that, that are COCA's um, constituents. COCA serves the 13 counties around Tallahassee. It's a 100-mile radius. And so there are lots of people that we would work with. We would work with people local, but we would also do outreach to people in Panama City or if there could be an artist calling from Thomasville, Georgia. And we would find ways to, you know, help them with their business, help them get connected, help them find grants. So I did a lot of consulting. Um, And that was pretty... That was very, very heavily involved in that for the first part of my Coca career. As there, there, there was a time at Coca in which Coca was able to um, receive some money that we were able to invest, you know, in in a really strong website and do some, there was one year where that we were able to invest uh, tourism dollars. And that is when we were able to launch the TallahasseeArts.org website. So at that point, my rules sort of doubled. And not only was I helping people in the community, I was finding new ways to promote COCA. And by COCA, COCA is the Council on Culture and Arts, but that was sort of like our business name, but at the time, like the forward, the public name was, people know us a lot of times by Tallahassee Arts, because that's what they went to for social media or the calendar.
1: I'd like to just spend a minute kind of defining the arts community. What is, it's not just concerts and the Shakespeare (laughs) Festival and, I mean- what what is the art community in te- the arts community in Tallahassee So
0: there's there's a lot of community theater here, there's a ton of of educational programs for kids. You have history, you have heritage events, you've got tons and tons of classes and workshops. You have interesting things like Irish step dancing or you might have a pottery class, but there's just I, I remember when I would put together the Coca newsletter that goes out, would go out every Monday. And there was a section at the bottom that would, was called also this week. And there would typically be 100 to 130 arts events going on every week. And I was always blown away at the the breadth and depth and diversity of, right. of what was happening.
1: How is the arts community different now than it was when you started?
0: I think they are, I think the community is more sophisticated. There's certainly the grants programs that, that have have evolved and they're more online and they're more technical. Um, there's more and more demand for for local funding, absolutely. So I think there's more people that are involved. And I think many, many of them have grown. We, we did lose some people. Some people have, have left the community. But but for the most part, it seems to me when I look at – when I was looking at like what the applications were in the grant program, that many organizations are thriving and continuing to grow. Right. And I think there's a huge demand in this community for support for the arts.
1: Yeah, for sure. A Complete bounce back from COVID now?
0: Mostly, I think. Has
1: it changed? Well, Has the delivery Definitely. Changed? I
0: do remember. So when COVID happened, I remember like very quickly shifting to, you know, taking everything online and trying to figure out how our arts organizations that had grant deliverables. How are they going to do that? And then a lot of them very, very quickly shifted toward what what was hybrid and remote programming going to look like. Frankly, it got everybody up to speed. I mean, a lot of us had thought, well, yeah, we're going to improve our infrastructure. And I don't know about your organization, but even at COCA, from, from you know, our own structure. Like in a week, we had to figure out basically how to hold hold and do remote meetings, as did the rest of the arts community. We we did a lot of what we were supposed to do as the arts agencies, make sure people knew how to get connected.
1: Right, you're also the managing director of an organization called Music for Food Tallahassee.
0: So Music for Food is, it's actually a an organization that is in Boston. I think it was started in Boston. We haven't done a lot in the last three years, although we are going to have some concerts coming up in the fall. But that's basically a project that I um, work with um, two or two lovely and wonderful um, musicians here in, in Tallahassee. Corinne Stilwell, who is the concertmaster of the Tallahassee Symphony and a professor at Florida State, and Carrie Holden, who is a symphony musician and the librarian for the Tallahassee Symphony as well, and just people that I know. The idea of music for food is basically to create chamber music, perform chamber music and then collect food and or cash donations and then help out either donating to a food bank or a local food pantry or something um, of, that, of that nature to help raise the awareness of food insecurity.
1: All right. And then in the last few months, you made a pretty significant career change. I did. Uh, you joined RB Oppenheim Associates, which is an award-winning integrated marketing firm here in Tallahassee. Holds a special place in my heart. Yes. Uh, Rick Oppenheim has uh, been a good friend and mentor. I worked there in my 30s. A lot of the success I have today, I attribute to him and his influence in my professional career. So always thankful to Rick. So obviously, I think you made a good move. Good people there. What was intriguing to you about this new challenge?
0: It um Sometimes the stars just align. This was an opportunity for me to grow professionally, do some things I have wanted to do. What makes it so nice for me is some of the clients that I work with directly um, happen to be larger statewide nonprofits or associations, and so a lot of what I was doing at Coca in terms of advocacy and learning how to, you know, promote those types of messages felt aligned very naturally with the kind of um, clients that I'm working on with for RB Oppenheim. Um, and then I'm also excited, you know, I'm starting to do some like we're starting to do some planning. What's the future going to look like? How are we? Right. going to grow. And obviously, as a new part of the team, it's it's most important for me to to, to dig in and understand what the, 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 the structure is of the company. I will say what I really, really like about it is that we're a team. Hmm. And it's a real treasure to be able to meet with somebody. I had a meeting with a, one of our clients this morning and realized that as I was making notes, I was already thinking who on my team can help enhance this service and this this deliverable. And that's just a real luxury that you don't always have when you are in house. Right. And I'm enjoying that. Great. I'm enjoying that a lot and it it kind of goes back to my account executive and sales manager days when I had clients. So, yeah. I'm enjoying that again. Yeah. Very that's much. Fine.
1: Yeah. All right, we talked briefly before about your children, yes. so I wanted to bring them back into the story. Yes. Um just Tell us about them and particularly their what they're doing with music now, which I know you're really proud of.
0: So my husband Rob and I are super proud of both kids. They are um, they both made careers in music, and our son Ryden is married to a cellist, Katie, and they live in Tucson. They did their graduate work at um, the University of Arizona in Tucson and they are arts integration specialists at Tucson Unified School District and then in addition they teach private lessons and then my son um, he won a job as a uh, symphony musician so he plays in the Tucson Symphony in the viola section he wow. plays the viola
1: It's very cool
0: Yep and then our daughter is pursuing her master's degree at the New England Conservatory of Music in Boston and she is there right now I do um owe a, a, a great debt of gratitude to Dr. Valerie Arsenault, who is the music director and president of the Talasi Bach parley. Um she was their teacher for a long, a long time and took lessons with them, and then also to um, to Professor Stilwell, who taught, you know, Claire the last couple of years she was in high school. Right. And without that sort of access to teaching and to programs like the youth orchestra, it is extremely hard to, quote, make it from This market as compared to some of the kids that grew up in Boston or Philly or Chicago or New York and the access that they have. So for both Ryden and Claire to um, have pursued music coming from, you know, which is basically a small town and to have had those resources here for lessons and youth orchestra, I'm incredibly grateful. I do want to express my appreciation very much to the city and the county for helping to fund Programs like COCA's grant programs, all that money is passed through to our arts organizations. Without programs like that, we don't have kids that can can make it. We've, you know, I know the Young Actors Theater does the same thing. They've got some wonderful alum, you know, kids who are alumni and then have made it. They've got same with the Tallahassee Ballet or V Ballet. But um, these kind of programs for young people are exceedingly important. Mm. And that is one of the reasons I'm, I mean, you can see like, uh, you're looking at me now, my face has gotten very serious. Yeah. But yeah. I, I really believe this. And this is why it was such a joy to to advocate and work at Coca for so long. I, I watched my kids thrive and the music training for them was exceptional and is exceptional. I, I don't mean just like the training here, I mean the process of becoming a musician. Right. You learn dedication and skill and practice and Disappointment and beauty and joy and teamwork—it's—it's it's really quite magical.
1: Yeah, what is something that maybe we haven't talked about that that you're interested in or that a hobby or something you enjoy doing?
0: Well, one of the things I alluded to that I have enjoyed a lot is um, this little dog I have, Geo. People may have seen him on social media. If you follow me, there's lots of there's lots of posts of Geo And there's also lots of posts of this little calico cat I have, Sophie. And they have a little Instagram account called Sophie and Gio. And um, that was my practice account when I first started trying to figure out how to use Instagram. Gio's two years old, and I got him at the beginning of COVID as I, I think I needed to sort of invest, uh, front, front load a gym membership, and he has kept me moving. And so he and I go lots of places together. We do a lot of walking. He has vid- admit visited many, many stores, and he, for a while, became um, sort of the arts dog. And we did a lot of um, Geo Explores the Arts videos. I've enjoyed very much learning about the breed. My husband and I used to show Hungarian in vishlas a long time ago, just as sort of a fun thing. I have actually enjoyed learning more about, about the uh, Italian greyhound breed, and he comes from a really wonderful um, breeders in Georgia who are terrific people, and he's a very sound and healthy and, you know, wonderful breed ambassador. So I've loved, awesome. loved learning about that.
1: Great. All right, two final questions. Looking back, what is the one thing or person that you think changed the trajectory of your life to this point?
0: Well, interestingly enough, I think the one comment that somebody made was the, one, was the woman that said, it's time for your kids to start music lessons. Because I can distinctly remember Ryden was in a Montessori school and she was his Montessori teacher. He was all three years old. And she said, I think he needs to start music lessons and he should play the harp. And that definitely was the sentence that did make a big change. I, I don't know that she, she wasn't the biggest influence, but right. I can pinpoint no, that, yeah. that that was a big change. And, you know, because that
1: really wasn't on the radar. Before it wasn't that on, that on the radar at
0: all. I mean, I was like, OK, you know, sure, we'll do this. And, and I am one of those people that if I if I'm going to learn about something, then I completely nerd out and then I throw myself all into it. Right. So, of course, I had to be like the best Suzuki mom and, you know, learn all the things. And I started taking violin lessons myself, which actually was really helpful. Did you do that? I did. For how long? About 10 years, 10 10 or 15 years. You played the
1: violin for 10 years? Yeah. yeah. With the Suzuki method, just like you were a kid? Yeah,
0: I did. Those CDs that just never stopped? Yeah, I listened to all the CDs, and I got up to Suzuki book four, which was the Bach double, Wow! and I certainly wasn't amazing, but I did okay as an adult. Did you play
1: in any groups or ensembles or anything?
0: I played in the youth orchestras for a while in like the lower levels, which was really fun. So and there then, were all
1: these little people and yeah, then you sitting there? Yeah, I, I really
0: actually enjoyed that very, very much. Wow. And um, Chris Miller, who teaches at Child's, was nice enough to let me sit in. But I, I did enjoy that, and I learned enough about it as a player. I couldn't do the things, but it has given me a huge amount of appreciation. Yeah. When I listen to my kids play, like I can see and hear things that I wouldn't have known. So that is very typical Erica, like learn all about it. That's just what I do. Right. I easily go down the rabbit hole.
1: That's Awesome. All right, final question. The podcast is called How I Got Here, mm-hmm. and we've talked about how you've gotten to this point in your life. Where do you think here might be for you in three to five years from now?
0: Oh, that's that's a fun question. You know, I um, so Rob and I are, are empty nesters, and um, that's been – it's been fine. You know, I'm, we miss the kids, but it's also just been an interesting time, like where we've got two dogs. We've been taking them for walks, and I'm actually a quilter which we didn't talk about, um, and that was probably well, something. Well,
1: okay, time out. We'll talk about that for a Quilter. minute. So tell me about your quilting.
0: So I um, make modern quilts, which basically means, so quilting quilting, and fiber arts have sort of, I think there's a little bit of a renaissance going on with that. But I basically um, have learned the joy of cutting up fabric into like little tiny pieces and then sewing it back together again which is basically what quilting is but it's it's a very for people that are somewhat type a and you there it's a process you have to follow a lot of steps like first you figure out your colors and you look at the pattern and then you see how much material you need and then there's a lot of like careful cutting with like slicing sharp things so we're talking more
1: traditional quilt not like a t-shirt quilt no or like, traditional, like traditional traditional real quilting
0: but what's what i personally like is i love the traditional blocks in these really beautiful beautiful modern fabrics which so they're not dark like old-fashioned quilts they have then you know, there's just beautiful palettes of like russets and oranges and um, you know, teals. I mean, there's just beautiful fabric out there right so now. So are you
1: part of a quilting group or are you doing this all on your own?
0: I'm, I have, I have definitely, uh, there are some wonderful, wonderful resources here. I am a sort of a hands-on person and I taught myself a lot of this trial and error, but also there's some wonderful resources on Instagram and, and um, you just learn by doing it. Right. And so for me, it's very relaxing to use my hands and I like the process of, you know, completing a quilt. I bought my first like big girl quilting machine um, this year, which okay. actually has enough space that I can can quilt on it. But but that is um, one of the things that I've been doing more of. Um, actually, even have a little Etsy, Etsy shop where I make some like cat pillows and things. So I'm very excited about my position at RB Oppenheim. I think that this is the right position for me at the right time where I'm able to pull all of my skills together the the sales and the account management and some of the you know presentation and documentation skills and management skills advocacy skills Um, this just came for me at the right time in my career and I'm feel um, confident and happy and grateful and sometimes tired and working really hard, but I think we all are right now. But I just, I I think that in three to five years, um, a, lot of, a lot of things could change. I mean, I think maybe there'll be more business, there'll be more digital opportunities. And I feel extremely fortunate to be surrounded by people that I know um, are gonna want, want to grow as well. So it just feels like just a neat growth opportunity. I'm very grateful to have the option of working um, remotely which I, which I do frequently and that, that's been a real joy. Um, hopefully being able to spend you know some time visiting um, Ryden and Katie in Tucson. certainly spending more time with Rob. I, I, he has he has a dog that's kind of his dog and so he and I have been taking lots of walks and you know hopefully we can get down to the beach or I'm really enjoying getting to spend some time with, with him and kind of in this whole new phase of our lives, which is really lovely.
1: Thanks for listening to the show. You can subscribe at Apple Podcast, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. It really does make a difference. Thanks to my amazing staff at Fiore Communications, who pick up the slack while I'm working on these podcasts, and to Troy Bloom for composing our theme music. You can hear more of Troy's creations on Facebook and Instagram at Troy Bloom Music. To connect with the podcast or suggest a future guest, follow us on social media or email us at podcast at fioricommunications.com.